Hello everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram. My username is Law Lockdown. Check out my website, www.lockdownlaws.com. And finally, if you have the time, please give me a rating on Apple Podcast. Either way, thank you for listening, and I appreciate your support. My guest today is Brian Abramson. Brian is a lawyer and author. He was writing about vaccination laws before it was cool. He published a book in 2018 called Vaccine, Vaccination, and Immunization Laws. Brian, thank you for joining me today. It is a pleasure to be here. So we're going to try to cover a lot today from what happens if you get injured by the vaccine. Um, Can the government compel you to get it? Can you get fired from your job if you refuse to get vaccinated? And we're also going to cover terms like herd immunity. So let's get right into it, Brian. My first question to you is, does the government have the power to compel individuals to get the COVID-19 vaccine? Well, the short answer is, if we go by uh, history and precedent, yes. Uh, There is a very long history of the government mandating vaccination, uh, particularly where there are uh, health emergencies ongoing. Uh, Really, this traces back to the invention of vaccines itself. So in 1796, an English physician named Edward Jenner uh, observed that people who had become ill with cowpox did not then develop smallpox. And he came up with this theory that uh, exposure to the disease caused the body to develop uh, a response to it, which prevented you from getting disease in the future. And as soon as his findings were published, uh, some governments, Germany, for example, started programs to uh, employ this technology and vaccinate their populations um, against smallpox. And incidentally, uh, when you read the the literature of vaccine law, for about the first 120 years, almost every case that you come across will have to do with smallpox, uh, because that was the only vaccine that existed for a very, very long time. Uh, And when when some vaccines were developed later, uh, like the rabies vaccine, they weren't vaccines that were for distribution to the general population. Um, so almost all the cases will be smallpox cases. But you know, very early on, um, US state governments and municipalities started saying, you know, we want people to be vaccinated. We're going to do either encourage vaccination or, or in certain scenarios and people in certain populations were going to require vaccination. Um, if you go back to the 1870s and 1880s, you find accounts of vaccinators who would actually uh, go around in certain areas, um, predominantly where there were uh, minority populations, 
and forcibly restrain and vaccinate people uh, against their will. Uh, that's not something that happens anymore. Uh, there are very few laws even on the books that would allow uh, forced vaccination as it is called. Um, although it is something that still happens from time to time in prisons with um, state and federal prisoners being forcibly vaccinated when there is an outbreak of something in a prison. But among the general population, that doesn't happen. Uh, what does happen is the state uses uh, an array of coercive powers to say, uh, for example, we're going to have a quarantine. You can't engage in certain kinds of activities. Uh, you can't participate in certain professions. Uh, you can't attend school as a child uh, or perhaps as an adult at a college or university unless you have proof of vaccination. Uh, and generally speaking, there are some common exceptions that are made to that. Uh, there are exemptions for people who have a medical contraindication uh, to being vaccinated with a particular vaccine. Um, most jurisdictions allow people to provide evidence of some kind of religious objection as a basis to get out of vaccination. Um, but then beyond that sort of, uh, there's still a principle that you can exclude unvaccinated people uh, from an activity that they might be able to participate in with an exemption from vaccination when the threat, the virus itself is still going around. So you have these circumstances where you have, and this is before COVID-19, this has been going on um, for decades. You have circumstances where students are required, for example, to have a chickenpox vaccination. They may be able to get an exemption because they have an allergy or a religious objection but then if there is a chicken pots outbreak in the school, the school officials are still able to say, well, you're not allowed to come to school because you don't have that vaccination. Um, now we have COVID-19. Uh, we do have some vaccines for it. The disease is still considered to be widespread and prevalent. So we're in a circumstance where uh, if there are authorities who want to bar people from taking in activities because they're not vaccinated, they can say this is a present threat and we can keep you from attending school or keep you from uh, partaking in certain professions or other activities until you have proof of vaccination, even if you're someone who would be entitled to an exemption of some kind. Let's talk about fines. Um, there's this case, it's called Jacobson versus Massachusetts out mm -hmm. of um, the Supreme Court in 1905. And I know you're very familiar with it. And uh, to our listeners, this case has been popping up left and right. Um, this has sort of been the main source of the lockdown laws with COVID-19. You see a lot of judges using this. Um, and in that case, uh, the state of Massachusetts fined Mr. Jacobson for not getting the smallpox vaccine. Um, do you foresee the government using that case to maybe fine people who opt out of getting the COVID-19 vaccine? Well, we haven't seen that specific kind of penalty in a very, very long time. Um, and I think governments have found it a lot more effective to just condition access to things that people want access to on vaccination. Um, Jacob, the Jacobson case is, is a fascinating case. So here you have an individual who actually had previously been vaccinated for smallpox some 10 years before. Uh, 
Um, and one of the things about smallpox vaccination is that, you know, like some other vaccines that are out there today, uh, you need a booster once in a long while. But when he had had his previous vaccination, he had a very bad reaction to it. Um, and, you know, really it's worth noting that smallpox as a disease was a scourge of the nation and of the world. Uh, it could roll through a town and kill one out of every six people in that town. There are uh, records of those kinds of casualties. The vaccine, uh, depending on kind of the time period and how well developed it was at that point, could itself kill anywhere between one out of every 16 people to one out of every 100 people who received it. Um, and that's kind of a remarkable thing. We would not allow a vaccine to be on the market uh, in modern times that had that serious of an effect. Uh, wow. But, you know, the idea was you have a fully vaccinated population and that stops the epidemic, that stops the disease, um, which is why the government was so concerned with getting everyone vaccinated, even people who um, were opposed to it, and even people who might have a bad reaction. Uh, and Jacobson wasn't the only one. He also had a brother and a son, I believe, both of whom had the vaccine in the recent uh, wave of vaccinations and had a very bad reaction. And he had a genuine fear that if he was required to receive this vaccination, he would die. Uh, and that wasn't uh, kind of a frivolous or trivial or ill-founded fear. There were people who died as a result of the vaccination because you are giving people, uh, even if it is a, a mild and attenuated case, you're giving people smallpox, which is a deadly disease. Um, it might not be as bad as the wild version of smallpox that is going around, but you know they might not catch that if they're careful. Uh, the government had at that time uh, a five dollar fine, and that translates in in twenty twenty dollars to something over one hundred and fifty dollars. So it's the equivalent of saying we're going to give you a hundred and fifty dollar fine. Uh, they didn't have any kind of I'm attached to that immediately, although that was back in the days when if you didn't pay a fine, you could go to jail for not paying the fine. Um, and Jacobson really was just asserting, I have a, a right, uh, I have an autonomous right not to be vaccinated. And, you know, I can afford to pay this fine, but I don't want to, and I don't think I should be required to. And the Supreme Court uh, gave a very strong ruling in favor of the state and said that this is sort of a fundamental baseline police power of the state uh, to enforce public health. Uh, of course, we're before the Supreme Court of the United States in this case, this had already been decided by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court and had been appealed from there. And the Massachusetts Supreme Court had uh, come out with approximately the same response. This is a power that the state has. There's nothing uh, facially wrong with the statute uh, that it shouldn't be enforced. So the U.S. Supreme Court was really just addressing the question of, is this unconstitutional in some way? Is this a, a deprivation of life or liberty that is offensive to the Constitution? And the ruling that the Supreme Court made to this effect has been very influential um, down the generations. There's one other case in which the Supreme Court has addressed vaccination specifically, 
And that was 1922 case of Zuppi King, where the San Antonio School District said that no student would be allowed to attend school in the city of San Antonio, whether public school or private school, unless they had been vaccinated. Uh, and the court basically said, well, if you can require people to be vaccinated and go so far as to fine them if they're not, then it's sort of a lesser included power to say we're going to deny access to some benefit to people who are not vaccinated um, and that the need for having a fully vaccinated population uh, of students outweighs the right of individual students to be able to attend school. Um, now, this was back in the 1920s. The idea that there was uh, kind of a right to education or a right to public education was far less robust than it is today. Uh, but, you know, nonetheless, we have carried forward that idea that even if we consider the right to attend school to be a fairly fundamental right, the power of the state to compel vaccination um, before someone is able to attend school is still considered to be paramount. Um, there's no other case where the Supreme Court has squarely examined whether vaccination can be compelled by the state or rights can be withheld contingent upon vaccination, but it has been touched on numerous times. Uh, for example, in the rather infamous case of Buck v. Bell, where the, the court held that the state has the power to require sterilization of retarded people. Uh, they cited vaccination and the state's power to compel vaccination as supporting uh, that right of sterilization. Uh, there are other cases, for example, uh, assisted suicide cases where the court has said if the state has the power to vaccinate, to require vaccination, then uh, it follows in some way from that, that they have the power to prohibit people from being removed from a feeding tube, even if the family wants them to be removed. Uh, that if the state has the power to compel vaccination of students, then they therefore have the power to allow uh, drug testing of students uh, because it's a similar sort of invasion of privacy that is involved. So uh, vaccination has been first held to be this fundamental police power and then from there a lot of other uh, things that have been deemed within the state's police power have been extrapolated uh, or have been founded on that as a baseline power. Um, and I should also mention of course that in addition to those US Supreme Court cases that have held that, there have been a substantial number of state Supreme Court cases and uh, federal appellate court cases that have squarely addressed the power of the state to compel vaccination and have fairly uniformly held uh, that this is a fundamental police power of the state and something that can be done. Yeah. There is some question, you know, the court has recently been uh, substantially reconfigured, you know, just in the past couple of years um, of whether the current configuration of the Supreme Court will see things differently if a case like that arises again. Um, although if you look at the individual jurisprudence, uh, even the recently appointed justices, uh, I see reasons to think that that's not likely to be uh, a major change in the fact of vaccination being considered 
uh, this sort of fundamental police power that states can enforce. Well said. Uh, the Buck v. Bell case, that case will blow your mind. If you, for the listeners out there who, who don't know about that case, that was actually my second episode. Uh, go back and check it out. Um, it was a horrible period in our time where the government was forcibly sterilizing what they called uh, feeble-minded people. Um, the horrors of the, this was in the 1920s, and then the horrors of the eugenics movement in Hitler, Germany, um, changed public opinion with that, and that case was overturned. Although it's interesting, when I did the research on that case, I think the state of Virginia still had it in their books up until the 1970s, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, another thing you mentioned was uh, education, and, and the Supreme Court, this, this is going to surprise a lot of people, the Supreme Court has specifically said that education is not a fundamental right. And that term fundamental right is is important because um, if, if the Supreme Court determines that something is a fundamental right, then it gets the highest standard of review. Um, but, but getting back to the Jacobson case, you know, you mentioned the state's police power and that's not in the constitution. I think it was just um, implied by our founding or by our framers that um, this power exists to uh, promote the general health and, and well-being of the people. What bothers me is um, I think some of these judges don't do an in-depth reading of Jacobson. Um, I don't think it's really applicable to, to what's going on today with COVID. I mean, back then, smallpox was killing one in three people. Um, our infrastructure was a lot different. We didn't have good hospitals, roads. Um, that was before the different levels of scrutiny. And also now with COVID-19, I think, you know, certainly if you're under 60, the death rate is under 1%. Um, so what do you make of that? What do you make of, of judges these days kind of applying the, the same standard in, in Jacobson to what's going on today with COVID? Well, I think there is a degree to which um, it is inertial. You know, this is sort of, well, this is how we've always done things and we're continuing to do things. Um, and I think there's also a degree to which uh, we as a society have kind of uh, become used to the idea that there aren't going to be uh, epidemics that kill large numbers of people. So if you go back uh, 100, and, you know, 100 years or 120 years, you go back to the turn of the 19th century, the leading cause of death uh, for all people was infectious disease. More people died of infectious disease than died of old age um, or died of all other causes combined. And, you know, there's a, there's a particular set of these diseases um, that we're familiar with, influenza, diphtheria, um, and to a, a great extent, you know, there are, are a confluence of things that have led to the reduction of these. Now, vaccines, um, I think, have been a very effective part of that. Uh, as Justice Scalia wrote in uh, his, his very well-researched decision in Brusevitz v. Wyeth, um, vaccines have basically been so effective that we've forgotten what it was like before there were vaccines. Uh, and they've been therefore kind of a victim of their own success. 
but vaccines aren't the only thing uh, that we have developed. Um, you know, one of the one of the interesting observations coming out of the Gulf War, I recall, was that uh, soldiers were surviving traumatic injuries. There, there were a lot more soldiers coming out of the war with amputations, and they were surviving these traumatic injuries at a higher rate. And it wasn't that uh, there were more injuries that cause amputations in the world in previous wars. It's just that there were more injuries to amputations, but they didn't die because the medical technology had where uh, even with that serious of an injury, your life could be saved. So we do have a lot of uh, advances in medical technology that have allowed people's lives to be saved that, that would have been lost in previous generations uh, due to infectious disease. And, you know, there's still plenty of infectious diseases out there uh, for which there is no vaccine or no effective vaccine, um, but for which we're now able to keep people alive who might previously have died. HIV is, is um, a pivotal example. Uh, there's no, there's been 40 years of research and no vaccine has been developed for HIV. And yet people who are developing the disease now have a much higher survival rate because uh, other therapies have been developed and other methods of treatment have been developed that are much more effective for it. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be dismissive of the role of vaccination. I think it's, it's generally beneficial to society. Um, and there are legitimate questions as to where the limitation should be uh, in terms of what vaccinated and unvaccinated people are able to do. Uh, but at the same time, we haven't seen anything like smallpox uh, in our lifetimes. It's easy for people who, you know, never lived through something like that to see COVID-19 um, as this uh, kind of enormous and historic event. But the death toll of COVID-19 is uh, actually substantially lower as a percentage of the population than historic plagues and epidemics. Um, that occurred uh, throughout human history up until about 100 years ago. Well said. Okay. Well, I want you to put, uh, bring out your crystal <laughs> ball. Um, this is probably not going to happen anytime soon, but um, this fascinates me to think about. What do you foresee in the future, you know, once the vaccine is, is more widely available with respect to flights, sports games, uh, concerts. Do you think that um, you'll have the, the private arena or I guess some of the, some governmental agencies as well, but um, do you think you'll see some sort of uh, mandatory vaccination, um, you know, show your card or something in order to get into a concert or hop on a flight? Well, I think it's important to distinguish between government action and private action. Um, a, a private business owner has some degree of ability to say uh, who they will and will not do business with. Um, you can't do that in a discriminatory way. So when people think of the Americans with Disabilities Act, they often think about it in terms of employer and employee relations and you can't fire someone based on a disability, um, but it also applies 
to customers. You can't uh, discriminate against a potential customer on the basis of a disability. That's why businesses are very often required to have uh, wheelchair ramps and handicapped parking spaces and other uh, facilities for people who may have disabilities. Um, so there is going to be uh, some proportion of the population that has what is called a contraindication, um, that has something in their, their own physical uh, constitution or in their history that makes it inadvisable for them to actually get a particular vaccination. So if you start saying to people, everybody who's going to have access to this concert or this venue, uh, this event, uh, or to an airline flight, for example, uh, must be vaccinated or you can't come in, uh, you may be discriminating against people who have some condition that prevents them from being vaccinated, and that's against the law. Um, you know, but again, businesses do have some degree of leeway with this. You know, and you'll, you'll see with the business, for example, it says no shirt, no shoes, no service. Um, you know, that, that does stand for the ability of the business to, to make some determinations about who they won't serve. Um, so if business can demonstrate that there is some, some threat to uh, the people who work there or its customers uh, by the fact that um, people trying to come in are in fact unvaccinated, then they can use that standard. And it's a standard that the EEOC has enunciated uh, and has said it is applicable to COVID-19. It's called the direct threat standard. Uh, they can say that, well, there is a direct threat to our business uh, by people coming in who are unvaccinated because they're more likely to be spreading this disease. Uh, and therefore on that basis, uh, we can prevent them from coming in, even if their, their inability to be, to be vaccinated is a result of some physical condition. Um, now there is a kind of a caveat to that, which is that you have to make a reasonable attempt to offer accommodations. Uh, and there are a wide range of uh, accommodations that are available uh, that are generally applied in the employment sector, but which could actually also be applied to customers uh, seeking to patronize a business. So uh, a business could in theory say, well, we're not going to let you in unless you're vaccinated, or if you're not vaccinated, then you have to wear a mask to come in. And as we all know, mask wearing has become ubiquitous in this time of COVID-19. Um, it's just a funny aside to that. A couple of years ago, the Canadian Supreme Court held that it was unconstitutional under Canadian law to require employees to wear a mask in lieu of vaccination. And that ruling appears to have gone out the window because now everybody's required to wear a mask. Uh, but you can require customers in your establishment to wear a mask to come in. And you know, that's sort of an extension of that old rule. No shoes, no shirt, no mask, no service, you could say. Um, in theory, you could require them to provide uh, a recent COVID test saying, here, I've gotten a test and I don't have COVID. Uh, so it doesn't matter that I'm not vaccinated. I'm just, I don't have a disease. Um, now, there's, there's one kind of tricky area, which is antibody tests. And antibody tests are available uh, for a number of different diseases. Uh, the ones that are available for COVID are a bit suspect in terms of how accurate they are. There are some questions around that. 
although these things too, do tend to become more and more accurate over time, the technology develops and is refined. Um, but in the state of New Jersey, for example, students are allowed to provide an antibody test showing that they have uh, measles antibodies in lieu of being required to have a measles vaccination. So there are some jurisdictions, and that's just one example, where by law you're permitted to show an antibody test and say, I have the antibodies, therefore I don't need vaccination because all a vaccine is supposed to do is cause your body to generate these antibodies. Um, but under the ADA, you can't ask people about the, the details of their medical condition. So as it stands, the EEOC has ruled that you can't ask people, it's prohibited to ask people for an antibody test. However, just because you can't ask doesn't mean they can't tell you. So in theory, and this is something I've been telling employers who are concerned about how should I deal with uh, employees going forward with the vaccine coming out, you can't tell employees you're required to give me an antibody test or even if you give me an antibody test, that will be uh, a means to avoid vaccination. But you can tell employees that I'm requiring you to be vaccinated. Um, although as a caveat to that, if you were to show me an antibody test, I couldn't require that of you, or that would be a reason for me not to require that of you. So you can sort of dance around the line and make it known to employees that an antibody test will get them out of a vaccination mandate, but you can't ask for or require an antibody test. Um, that's something, honestly, I think should change. I, I wish Congress would do something about it because I think that's the level at which uh, it would need to be done that at least for the duration of this pandemic, um, people should be able to provide an antibody test and, and employers and businesses alike should be allowed to inform employees and customers that, hey, if you provide an antibody test, then we know you've got the antibodies and we're not going to uh, assume that you need a vaccination. Um, that's, that's certainly one area where that could be improved. Um, and then there, there are some other, you know, if you have uh, testing for the disease uh, around the time that you have the occurrence of any kind of a symptom, um, if you engage in some kind of activity where you can work remotely, uh, you know, in theory, a business could set up a, uh, like a barbershop could set up a, a partition and have one side where they only take customers who are vaccinated and another side where they only take customers uh, who are unvaccinated and have some additional um, precautions on the side for customers who are unvaccinated. So there's a wide array of possibilities there, um, but fundamentally speaking, businesses do have some leeway to require proof of vaccination, uh, although they might not necessarily be able to prohibit you from uh, patronizing the business as a customer, they might have to offer some other accommodation. There's one other uh, thing that I'll add to this because you had asked about airlines um, and that also depends, um, particularly if you have airlines, and I think most, most flights are either uh, from one state to another or from one country to another. You know, there are there aren't all that many states that are big enough that you have a lot of flights that are just entirely within the state. Uh, so you have to be cognizant of the fact that not only are there federal laws governing this, uh, but there are also state laws. There are state laws 
um, that affect people traveling from other states. Uh, some individual state may impose a requirement saying that if you're coming from a particular state that's having this uh, high level of, of COVID cases, then you need to have proof of vaccination uh, when you come off of the plane into our state. And uh, perhaps even more uh, stringently, this is something we're very likely to see happening in other countries. In fact, it's already the case that you have people historically who have traveled to countries in South America and Central Africa and gotten off the plane and been told, do you have your yellow fever vaccination card? And if they didn't know they needed a yellow fever vaccination card, they're told by uh, the officials in that country, well, now you need to get a yellow fever vaccination uh, quarantine for a week while we wait for it to kick in. And you know that's that's the thing that's actually happened. So uh, every country has its own governmental processes for determining what vaccination requirements will be. There are certainly countries that are far more robust um, in their government authority, government power over individuals uh, to be able to uh, assert that kind of thing that they don't have to have religious beliefs. Um, so we're very likely to see that where if you're traveling internationally, you have to be very careful about knowing uh, what the strictures are for the country that you're traveling to, uh, because you might not be able to pass through that country's customs and enter that country unless you've been vaccinated. So here's the dilemma I think we're facing uh, as a country from the people I've talked to. You have a group of people that say, you know, it's your civic duty to get the COVID-19 vaccination shot so that we can achieve herd immunity. And then you have other people saying, well, you know, this hasn't really been tested on pregnant women, on children. Um, you know, if you're under 40, you have a very low chance of um, dying or getting seriously ill from COVID. So I think that's the dilemma that most Americans are facing. Um, my question to you is, what does this term herd immunity really mean? Can you break that down for us? Yes. So herd immunity basically means that if a substantial enough portion of the population is immune to a disease, then there isn't a path through which that disease can reach the, the portion of the population that is not immune to that disease. Um, and it's really uh, kind of a fundamental idea of vaccination. And one of the reasons why vaccination is controversial uh, because on the one hand, uh, you know, we say we want everyone to be vaccinated so that they will individually be protected from disease, but we also want people to be vaccinated so that even those who aren't particularly at risk of a disease won't pass it on to those who are. Um, prior to the advent of the COVID-19, um, I often pointed to the 2018 adenovirus outbreak, uh, which very few people know about, but adenovirus is kind of stomach virus. It's, it's out there in the population. It's usually not deadly at all. Um, there is a vaccine for it, but it's not licensed for use generally in the United States. So if you're in the military, you will get an adenovirus vaccine. That's one of the uh, 
that's one of the um, the things that they use to make new recruits feel like a pincushion for a time. Uh, but outside of that, uh, you generally don't have access to an adenovirus vaccine. And in 2018, uh, there was an adenovirus outbreak, which got into a hospital in New Jersey that was a facility for caring for children with immunological disorders. And 12 of those children died of adenovirus. Um, so the idea is that if, if all the people who came in contact with those children, staff and family members and so forth, had received the adenovirus vaccine, then there wouldn't have been a path through which someone could transmit it to the children. Uh, and it wouldn't have gotten into the hospital and, and they would still be alive. Uh, so that's kind of a paradigmatic example of this vulnerable population that could be protected if, for example, we required everyone in the country to get an adenovirus vaccine. Um, but at the same time, um, and this adenovirus outbreak was fairly widespread. You know, there were hundreds of thousands or millions of people who had adenovirus, but uh, for the most part, they didn't know they had it because it's relatively mild in most people. Uh, you know, do you go about requiring the entire rest of the population uh, to have this vaccination uh, on the theory that uh, it would prevent uh, this sort of uncommon occurrence where it reaches these uh, children who are particularly vulnerable. Um, now with COVID-19, of course, the, the potentially vulnerable population is much, much larger. Um, you know, so it's, it's kind of a magnification of that question. And that really does lead to this sort of dilemma. Do you require people to be vaccinated for COVID-19 who are at lower risk in order to protect the people who are at the highest risk? Um, and, you know, that's, that's sort of a question of, well, where, where, are, you, where are you looking at it from? Um, you know, it's, it's a sort of the question of if you're, if you're a childless couple and you live in a school district, um, should you be required to pay the, the taxes that fund the schools. You don't have any children in those schools. Um, if, you're, if you're an elderly person or a person with some kind of uh, comorbidity who's very vulnerable to COVID, you might very much like for the rest of the population to be required to be vaccinated um, so that the disease can't reach you. Um, but why not just get the vaccination yourself? Yeah, and that's, you know, that's kind of the other option. Um, and as we've, as we've noted, there's always going to be a small proportion of the population who cannot receive the vaccine because they actually have uh, their own contraindication to it. Um, and I think that, you know, you're talking about a very small proportion of the population who can't be vaccinated for any given vaccine. Um, and at the same time with COVID-19, a fairly small proportion of the population um, that is dying of the vaccine, uh, or no, sorry, not of the vaccine, uh, dying from the disease. Um, so, you know, there's there, there are different theories about how should the vaccine be uh, prioritized. And that is indeed the reason why um, the FDA in developing this prioritization for who should receive this vaccine has put the people who are most uh, vulnerable to dying of the disease at the very top of the list. 
Um, it's also worth noting that no vaccine is 100% effective. Uh, you know, people I think have this idea that uh, a vaccine is supposed to be some kind of a shield around your body that prevents a virus from getting in. And that's not what it does. What it does is it builds up your body's response to the virus. So if you do get the virus in your body, uh, your immune system is prepped to respond to it very robustly. There are some people, um, and it's generally a relatively small proportion, for whom uh, the vaccine will be ineffective so that they don't develop a strong enough immune response uh, and they'll still be susceptible to dying from the disease. Uh, although the, the vaccines that are out there so far have shown a very, uh, very strong rate of preventing death or serious illness, um, although you can still potentially become infected. Uh, but there will be some proportion of the population ultimately, you know, if you say you, the vaccine is 95% effective, there will be that 5% for whom it just isn't as effective they can still get COVID despite being vaccinated. Uh, and, you know, we're talking now about taking this 1% of the, the population um, that's going to potentially die of COVID um, and reducing that by 95%. If everyone in that 1% of the population is able to be vaccinated, uh, it would reduce the threat uh, dramatically without um, more substantial program of vaccination uh, but at the same time, you know, the, the larger the proportion of the population that is vaccinated, the less likely it is that some incident will occur where the virus itself reaches a person who either has been vaccinated, the vaccine wasn't effective for them, or who's unable to be vaccinated. So we get to this um, question of diminishing returns, you know, how forceful a policy should the government uh, engage in to save one more life uh, or save an additional handful of lives. Uh, and, you know, in theory, uh, if you look at the numbers, if you had a very robustly vaccinated population where 95% uh, of the population was vaccinated against COVID, then there would be some additional number of lives saved. Um, but uh, that would kind of, you know, the counterbalance to that would be that it would uh, be an imposition of the government on all the people who, you know, first of all, might necessarily not necessarily want to be vaccinated for COVID and, and you know, be willing to, to uh, take whatever the chances are of being unvaccinated themselves. Um, uh, secondly, you would have some degree of adverse events from the COVID vaccination. Um, although those have tended to be, again, very low. So, you know, it's a low number of adverse events versus this potentially low number of deaths. Um, you know, it's, these are all these sort of factors that go into the counterbalance of making this, this public policy decision of, of what do we require in terms of vaccination. Sure. The, uh, the one-shot vaccine seems a lot more appealing. Um, the ones involving two shots, in some places of the country, it's been a complete nightmare, the, the rollout. Mm -hmm. I, I've read a lot of articles about people who can't get the second shot. Um, and to me, it's it's kind of a no-brainer. You know, I 
hear this that the essential workers should get it first but i mean shouldn't the people who are at higher higher risk and end up in the hospital get it first you know the people 60 and over in that term essential workers that's been driving me crazy from the beginning of this because uh there's so much gray area i mean out here in california um the marijuana dispensaries stayed open and and they were considered essential workers <laughs> so uh what are your thoughts on on the vaccine rollout in terms of uh, who should get it first? Well, there are two basic theories. Uh, and, and really the question is, um, what, do you, what do you want to focus on preventing? Do you want to focus on preventing deaths immediately or do you want to focus on preventing spread? So if you want to focus on uh, immediately preventing deaths, then the focus has to be, uh, the population of people most likely to die from COVID. And, you know, you figure out what are the factors um, that lead to those higher potentials, uh, being very elderly, being frail, having any of a number of comor comorbidities, um, you know, which can range from diabetes or um, obesity or heart disease or cancer and so forth. Um, and that would be the the first population that you would prioritize if that was your if your goal. Um, if your goal is you want to minimize spread of the disease, even if it's spread of the disease to people who aren't necessarily going to die from it, um, you know, then you would go immediately for well, who are the people in society who are most likely to need to come into physical proximity with other people, uh, and and likely to. Uh, spread a disease to them. And then you're talking definitely about uh, medical personnel because you really can't do the jobs as a, a doctor or a nurse without being physically in proximity to the patient in many cases. Um, then you are talking about first responders. Um, this is where teachers uh, come up. You know, if you want to get students back in the classroom, but you don't want students to be a vector through which uh, the disease is spread. Uh, then ideally you want to have teachers vaccinated. And, you know, it, it, it sort of comes as a surprise to a lot of people. Uh, there's never been a tradition in this country of requiring teachers to be vaccinated for anything. You know, we've often required medical personnel. Uh, more recently, we've tended to require uh, firefighters and police and other first responders, EMT certainly. Um, you know, if, you, if you're a member of an airline crew, you can't get a job on an airline crew without being uh, fairly robustly fully vaccinated uh, just because of the conditions of being in this sort of contained space for hours on end uh, for one flight after another after another you know there's there's this higher risk of exposure to disease um, but teachers have not had that requirement and, and it's something that uh, i think is definitely coming um, you know i have argued that that the focus should be on preventing spread because that is the way that we get to kind of reopening the economy and uh, regaining the confidence of the public that you know, they can patronize businesses um, and won't need to wear a mask in the future and so forth. Um, and that also is um, kind of controversial divergence of, you know, do you, do you focus on uh, preventing deaths 
or do you, you know, do you look at the economic impacts? Uh, and it's important to recognize in, in the course of that, that uh, the economy being uh, shuttered and shut down as it has been, has substantial health impacts on people. You know, people are going to die uh, who aren't dying from COVID, but they're going to die because um, they're out of work and they, they can't get employment and they have medical conditions and they need to be able to pay for those. Uh, people are going to die because, you know, they have a medical condition and they are afraid to go see their doctor because uh, they don't want to go out in public and expose themselves to the disease. So, you know, that's, that's also very much uh, a point of contention. Do you try to immediately sort of save lives of those who are right now the most vulnerable? Um, or do you try to uh, get the economy in a position where, you know, it's going to be able to reopen? Um, and it's not just a matter, you know, we've seen in, in some states, uh, recently they've declared, okay, we're gonna reopen the economy we're going to lift mask requirements and so forth. But the fact that some government official makes that declaration doesn't mean that the population is immediately instilled with confidence that uh, it's safe to go out uh, and safe to be around other people and, and safe to not wear a mask. You're still going to see um, an enormous proportion of the population kind of staying home and, and not, um, participating in a lot of commercial activities. So, you know, my, my position has been that the focus of vaccination should be on minimizing spread uh, because, you know, we want to get the, the country kind of back to work. Um, and also because if you do minimize spread, then that by itself protects the most vulnerable to a degree. Um, but, you know, I understand that there are those who say, okay, we've got to focus on on the most vulnerable and, and, and if we do that, then we don't need to worry as much about spreading the population that's uh, getting to those who are less vulnerable. So that's uh, really, it's, you know, it's a point of contention. And I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer. I think it might be something that, you know, 20, 25 years from now, history looks back and we say, well, this is what we did. And if we had done some other thing, it would have turned out differently. Or, you know, we look at what different countries did or different jurisdictions did, and we see what the different outcomes are in places that handle things differently. Sure. No, these are very tough decisions. And, you know, on one hand, you, you look at COVID-19 and you say, okay, it's got a death rate of less than 1%, but it's still killed half a million people. And that's about four Vietnam wars or five Vietnam wars. Um, so it's all about perspective and um, these are very, very tough decisions that we need to make. Um, but I, I'm curious to know, you know, you have studied vaccines, immunization. Um, you're an author of a book. You're very well read in this subject. Do you think that the government has overreacted with COVID-19 or do you think that the reaction has been um, good? Well, I would say the government is to a great degree a reflection of the people. Um, you know, the, the people, people in government are, they're just people themselves. They have the same fears of, uh, 
getting a disease and dying from it. And we have seen that there's no um, kind of barrier where, you know, there, there have been, uh, I think there was a sitting member of Congress who died of COVID last month, which is kind of a remarkable thing because it's a body that has um, the best healthcare accessible to them in the world. Um, and of course, hindsight is always 2020. When COVID first entered the United States, we didn't really know much about it. We didn't understand it. Um, we knew that it had caused a large number of deaths in a very short time in the Wuhan province of China, and that it had spread around the world very quickly. Um, we didn't have, uh, not only didn't we have uh, therapies for it, which we're beginning to have now, um, but you know, we, we didn't have any idea of, of how do we treat it and is it possible to treat it? We didn't know how infectious it was. We didn't know uh, how deadly it was. So the measures that were taken uh, were the measures that you would take in this sort of, uh, in this sort of fog of war, in this incidence of there being a real mystery about you know, how serious is this thing really? And we all remember how people were rushing to Walmart and hoarding toilet paper and so forth. There was there was a panic reaction, um, and that reaction. Yes. Instead of food and water, everyone went and grabbed toilet paper. Well, they grabbed, they grabbed food and water too. I will credit people. They definitely grabbed food and water too, but they also were uh, very strange to me. I, that I did not understand that the the toilet paper craze. Well, I, I mean, there was there was some some feeling among people at the beginning that you were going to have to be yeah go and sort of lock yourself in your house and not come out for uh, weeks and weeks or possibly months. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I don't I don't pretend to know the genesis of that particular aspect of it, um, but I do very much understand uh, the concern of people had with this disease, how quickly it was progressing and how deadly it was in the population. Um, and, you know, there, there were measures that were taken that were uh, measures that uh, were fairly appropriate to the potential for a disease being um, as deadly as it was thought to be at that time. Uh, and as much of a mystery as it was at that time. So, you know, very early on in that, uh, in that progression, I think in the beginning of February of 2020, uh, the US government invoked the PREP Act, declared a national emergency, um, rolled out a lot of authorities for uh, both the federal government and the states uh, to take actions to prevent the, the spread of this disease. And you know, a, a great part of that was that uh, it was this uh, kind of mysterious threat at that time. Um, another aspect of it was the fact that, you know, early on the death rate was higher and it was higher because uh, we had no idea how to treat this disease, uh, what, the, what the best method was. And as the, as the uh, pandemic has progressed in the United States, we have developed some therapies. Uh, we use monoclonal antibodies now. Um, they've proven fairly effective in preventing death from COVID. Uh, we, we know kind of what the progression is and 
um, the ideal way to treat patients who uh, do have COVID. Um, we have refined our knowledge of uh, the time period during which it is transmissible. Uh, and each of those pieces of information is kind of a step back towards normalcy um, and a step towards understanding, well, this is, this is how we get to a point where COVID is no longer presenting this threat to the population. Um, now, I'm not a virologist, I'm not a, a, a scientist, um, but I have studied uh, viruses in the course of uh, learning about vaccine law and their effects. And, you know, the COVID-19 virus is a particularly nasty virus. Uh, the, just the way it's configured, you know, it's, it attacks uh, more bodily systems than viruses typically do. A lot of viruses are very keyed towards a particular organ. It's like when you get the flu, it's really going into your lungs. Uh, hepatitis goes after the liver. Uh, HIV goes after your immune system itself, which is one of the reasons why it's so hard to develop a vaccine for it. Um, COVID goes after a number of different types of cells. So it's, a, you know, it's, it's somewhat more insidious than a typical virus. Um, it has a very strong hook that lets it latch onto cells, um, which is also its downfall. The vaccine goes after the hook itself and it's something the virus can't dispense with. Um, and it does have, you know, a, a substantially higher death rate than most of the viruses that we're used to in our population. And, you know, you've heard of people who have what they call a long COVID, where they take some of a very, very long time to recover um, because it does do more damage to organs, uh, particularly more damage to the lungs than a virus typically does. Um, and, you know, these are things that eventually we will develop um, treatments and therapies for. Um, I mean, obviously the, the vaccine is going to be the most effective thing. And I think the, the focus from the beginning of when this uh, pandemic started was, well, let's get a vaccine. And we got one in absolute record time. Um, there's never been uh, an effort like this in the history of the world in terms of vaccine development. Um, but we're also you know, working to develop constantly other ways to treat the disease. And uh, those will uh, bear fruit if they're not bearing fruit already. So, you know, kind of to go back to the original question, I don't, I don't think I would say that the initial response was an overreaction. The initial response was a reaction to um, the information that we had at the time, which was uh, both very sparse and what we did know or what we were hearing was somewhat extreme. Uh, and there were a lot of unknowns. Uh, over time, I think you tend to develop uh, responses to this that get carried forward even when they're no longer necessarily the best response. Um, I can give you an example. A lot of people started uh, washing everything that they brought back from the grocery store and say, oh, we heard that this can stick to surfaces for some period of time. So if I you know, buy a jar of mayonnaise and a box of cereal, I'm gonna get a, a soap and a sponge. And I'm gonna wash that box of cereal and wash that jar of mayonnaise. And now the you know, kind of guidance is and the understanding is that really the, the uh, by far most significant vector for transmission of the disease 
is um, coughing or the spread of droplets through uh, expiration, loud talking at a close range or something like that. Uh, but people are continuing to uh, engage in things that they started doing at the beginning, you know, this, this produce washing, not produce, but uh, uh, packaged food washing kind of thing. And it's not necessary, but it's just, you know, well, we're doing it this way. And we're, we're, we're in this mode and we don't want to take the risk of not doing it now that we've started doing it. Um, you know, and I do think that um, the kind of common sense is on the side of mask wearing being fairly effective to stop the spread of it. Uh, but, you know, that's uh, on the one hand, they say, well, you should wear a mask to protect other people from you in case you have COVID. So if you don't have COVID, then you're not protecting anyone by wearing a mask. Um, and if other people have COVID around you, yeah, you're protecting yourself by wearing a mask, but there are you know, certainly other things that you can do to protect yourself. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say the degree to which um, anything that was instituted at the beginning of this process is an overreaction. Uh, I certainly think that um, we know enough about the disease now that someone who's conscientious about it um, can both not catch it and not spread it um, without necessarily going to some of the extremes that, um, that were imposed at the beginning of the process. Yeah, and I, I think one of the more, more frustrating things is when you turn on the news and you see these governors or people in the media advocating for lockdown, lockdown, lockdown. Well, it's easy for them to say because they're still getting a paycheck. Um, and I think that rubs people the wrong way. And just again, going back to the gray areas with essential workers, you know, how you know, you can open a marijuana dispensary or a liquor store, or you can go to a big box retail store here in California. But for a long period of time, you could not go do uh, outdoor dining. And so um, I just mm -hmm. think that... Uh, one of the remarkable things actually, yeah. Well, one of the remarkable things about this is that uh, early on the government said that, you know, retailers that are selling certain kinds of products are essential services. Uh, and because of that, you ended up having a lot of small businesses that sell products in a particular niche having to close down because they weren't selling one of those, um, weren't selling one of those uh, kind of essential products that people need access to. But then you have these big box stores like um, Walmart or Target or what have you that are able to stay open because they happen to sell the essential products. And then they also happen to sell all these other products that are in no way essential. Um, and that has really caused a lot of pain to people who, you know, maybe you, you have a, a, a boutique that sells flowers and gift cards and that's, there's nothing essential about that. You have to shut down. Well, now people who want to go get uh, flowers and gift cards are going to a big box store that also sells those. And they might not be going to buy anything essential. They're just like, well, I need to get a flowers and gift cards for someone. And they're going and buying them from this, from this big store. They're buying them on Amazon. And, you know, small businesses are being put out of business for selling something that big businesses are still continuing to sell and, and all that uh, 
all that commerce is being diverted to this small number of big businesses. And that's, you know, fundamentally the reason why um, this handful of the wealthiest people in the country became substantially wealthier over the course of the pandemic, because, you know, these were people who were, were wealthy because they had companies like Amazon or Walmart and what have you. And now all this traffic is, is only being diverted to them because all of the traffic that used to go to uh, small businesses uh, selling products in this area has been shut down due to lockdowns and quarantines. I think that's well said. Um, I could talk to you all day about this, but in the interest of time, my last question mm -hmm. for you, which is really fascinating me, um, and I don't know if you can answer it, but do your best considering you've studied this topic. Um, do you think that COVID-19 escaped from a lab in China, or do you think it was spread? Um, I think the other theory was in some sort of food market. What are your thoughts? Well, I think it's almost impossible to tell. Um, I mean, we are talking about a virus, and you, you capture a sample of the virus, and um, the examinations of the virus itself don't appear to yield the markers of something that was engineered. Um, you know, it, it sort of looks like a wild virus. Uh, that doesn't mean anything one way or the other necessarily. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's really impossible to tell, you know, you can tell where the first major outbreak was. You can't particularly tell where a virus started. Um, kind of a famous case, case is the Spanish flu. Uh, everyone thinks of the Spanish flu, it's kind of this famous um, uh, pandemic on par with COVID, and in fact, with a, with a much higher number of deaths than uh, a much higher death rate than COVID has seen so far. Um, and the Spanish flu was, you know, imagined to have originated in Spain. That's, that's where the name comes from. Um, but really, the only reason that that it was called the Spanish flu was because um, there were a lot of other countries that were sort of in alliances with each other and, and wouldn't say that it came from somewhere other than Spain. And I believe ultimately um, decades later when they did DNA testing and they, they looked for uh, who were the earliest people to have died from this, that it actually originated in Kansas. Um, and I think in a, in, a, in a pig farm in Kansas. Um, so, you know, there's the fact that the first major outbreak uh, that we know of was in Wuhan um, doesn't necessarily mean that the, the virus originated in Wuhan at all. Uh, but, you know, I don't, I don't give a lot of credence to uh, the idea that it escaped from a lab, uh, just because I kind of follow the the uh, idea that you know you don't need to attribute to malice anything that can be explained by stupidity. Um, and you know, I've I've seen a meme on the internet that says that anyone who says that a single person can't change the world has never eaten an undercooked bat. Um, so there are. Um, instances you know, that are fairly well documented, the SARS virus is one, 
where, and it's, the SARS virus is a coronavirus, it's in the family coronaviridae, where a virus has crossed from animal populations to human populations. In fact, I was in a seminar last year where I heard a very chilling um, number. There are over 8,000 identified uh, coronaviridae variants, that's, that's different viruses in this family, that are known to exist in the wild that have never crossed over from animal populations to human populations or are never known to. And sometimes you have something like SARS or MERS, the Middle East Respiratory System, that crosses over and um, is so deadly that it, in effect, wipes itself out because people get infected and a bunch of people die, but they die so quickly that they don't have the ability to transmit the disease further. Um, so COVID-19 kind of seems to hit this sweet spot of being um, you know, deadly enough that it is a serious problem, but not so deadly that it can't transmit itself uh, very widely before it gets around uh, gets around the world. Really, um, you know, and it 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 seems um, not entirely impossible to me, but questionable that. Yeah, it, it's not the kind of disease that if you were trying to develop something uh, for weaponization or something like that, you know, you wouldn't make something that was so contagious that it would spread around the world and, and kill tens of thousands of people in your own country. Um, so I think that is kind of a, a strike against the idea that this was developed in a lab. Um, you know, if it was, it may have been. Um, just along the course of experimentation and not for purposes of uh, necessarily dissemination of the population because it is it is so dangerous that, that it doesn't make sense for that purpose. But, you know, I, I think most diseases that have uh, occurred in human history have just been kind of products of nature. And I don't see a reason particularly for COVID to be an exception to that pattern. Brian, your Twitter handle is at Ryan underscore Abramson, mm -hmm. your book um, in connection with Bloomberg Law is once again, it's called Vaccine, Vaccination and Immunization Laws. Brian, thank you so much for being on my podcast today and educating me and my listeners. Really appreciate it. It was an absolute pleasure to be here and I just wish we could have had another hour. The information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. Information in this podcast may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. Listeners of this podcast should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No reader or listener to this podcast should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information on this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information contained herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. 
use of and access to this podcast or any of the resources contained within the podcast do not create an attorney-client relationship. The views expressed at or through this podcast are those of the individual author writing in their individual capacities only, not those of their respective employers. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast are hereby expressly disclaimed. The content on this posting is provided as is. No representations are made that the content is error-free.